When I was about 10 years old, we uh, had this swimming lesson, and what we had to do, I took swimming lessons, sorry, and what we had to do was swim from one end of the pool to the other. The, the, the uh, teacher was on one end, and the whole class was on the other, and one by one you'd swim across, and they would evaluate you. So I swam across, and my whole class was behind me, and when I got to the end of the pool, I reached up, grabbed the, grabbed the edge of the pool, pulled myself out, and my trunks were around my ankles. And as you can imagine, as a 10-year-old, it was radically embarrassing. I mean, I'm just, there I am, I'm naked and ashamed. Uh, fast forward 30 years, I'm 40 years old. Don't worry, it's not another swimming pool story. That would be uh, terrible. Um, I'm 40 years old, and I'm, uh, in the wintertime, I rear-end another car. It's my fault. And I'm standing on the side of the highway. The police are there. The police are talking to me. There's witnesses around. The people are driving by, looking. And I felt just as naked, maybe more naked, just as embarrassed, possibly more embarrassed. And the, because when I, when I pulled myself up out of the swimming pool, it was embarrassing, but there was no, there was no guilt there. But when I hit that car and I stood on the side of the road talking to the police officer and everybody and everybody looking at me, I felt guilt because I was guilty and I felt shame and I felt more naked. This morning we're going to go in our text to Genesis chapter 3 as we've been walking our way through Genesis to see how God's grace and his love has really been moving towards us from the beginning, from the get-go. Today's text is Genesis 3. In a minute I'm going to read verses 20 to 24. But I just want to give you some context for that. This text is going to show us, uh, really all of chapter 3 shows us, that shame is continually seeking to imprison our hearts, and the grace of God is continually moving towards us to liberate our hearts. And so in the beginning, God creates everything, and it's perfect, and it's good, and repeatedly through chapter 1, you've got this repetition of God saying, it's good, it's good, it's good. And it's not because God's going around with a checkboard doing quality control on the universe, it's good in the Hebrew is like a celebration. Um, and, and so the, the, the way to hear when God says it's, he created and it is very good, it's like when you are enjoying something thoroughly. So God's not inspecting creation. He's enjoying it. It's like you eat that dessert and you flip the fork around and you salute the food and you're like, yeah, it's good. That's what's happening in Genesis 1. So God creates everything in perfection, but then man's sin brings damnation. And immediately after man breaks everything that God made, God's next move isn't to say, that's it, it's over, I'm moving away from you. God actually moves towards them in that moment. And from perfection to damnation, God immediately, right before this text that I'm about to read, promises redemption. Genesis 3.15, it is the first gospel. God says, preaches the gospel for the first time in Genesis 3.15. It is the entire Bible, it is all of scripture in a sentence. The rest of the Bible is Genesis 3.15 playing its way out. God saying, I'm going to come, I'm going to redeem, and I'm going to restore. I'm going to restore everything that I created. And I'm going to begin to draw people to faith in Christ. So, so God does this in Genesis 3.15. And so on the heels of this, we recognize that what we learn is that sin is not just about doing some sort of bad and immoral action. It can be those things, but there's nothing immoral about a fruit tree. So we learn something significant. Eating the fruit was not, oh, you did this horrible, really disgusting, horrific action, and now, you know, you're damned. Eating the fruit was taking a good thing, deciding that it was an ultimate thing. Living independent and apart from God. The essence of sin 
is anything in any form that we make an ultimate thing that we say, this will fulfill me. And so Genesis 3 starts to play itself out as we see that happen. And so it's because of that that sin is not a commentary on an intensive action. It's an extensive condition. So all of us need grace. None of us can walk in here and judge somebody else sitting in another seat because all of us need God's grace. Because all of us, even if we've placed our faith in Christ and our sin is forgiven, we struggle with sin because it's just our own version of living independently and living as God, which was the problem in the first place in Genesis 3. And so the grace of God at the foot of the cross levels the playing field so that all of us can relate to one another from a position of compassion and not comparison because we all need this grace, because our parents decided to live in independence, and we all find different ways of living in independence. And so we pick it up in Genesis 3, 20 to 24. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. For the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, Now lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat, and therefore live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. As Genesis plays out, We find that true fulfillment in our soul, true fulfillment in our hearts, cannot be found by believing in God in a general way. True fulfillment in our soul, true fulfillment in our hearts, only comes by loving God in a supreme way. It's not believing generally, it's loving supremely. I mean, that's really how we were created to be truly fulfilled, so we could actually enjoy good things. Because if our hearts aren't loving God in a supreme way, we can't really enjoy good things because we keep taking good things and trying to make them ultimate things. Because our hearts are constantly in this place of of craving. I mean, this is the the essence of sin from the beginning. That's why before the devil lied, before we read this text, before he lied, he sneered. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But the first words out of the devil's mouth is is he says, well, did God actually say? And in the Hebrew, it's just one word, af. And when when the devil says that, he's using the word ironically because it means certainly. So when the devil talks about God, he goes, oh yeah, 100%. But it's ironic. It's satire, right? And so he sneered at God before he argued about God. And the whole, the whole idea was, I, I'm not going to try and get you to deny him. I'm going to get you to dethrone him. And repeatedly throughout Scripture, we find all these different ways that it's like, well, it was really the strategy to get them to deny the existence of God. Not really, but just dethrone him. And so all of us today can, can see how in our own lives we can continually do that and dethrone him and struggle with finding different ways of dethroning him and putting something else on the throne of our hearts. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. It's this. We reach for things to fulfill us because of shame. And the grace of God covers our shame. And the Spirit of God is healing us from the effects of our shame. So first, let's look at how we reach for things to fulfill us because of shame. I mean, that's what happened in the, in the first place, right? That's what happened in Genesis. They reached for something, and it brought great shame. There is so much reaching in the first few chapters of the Bible, right? In chapter 2, God says, you can have everything. In other words, reach, reach for everything. Don't reach for this. But then in chapter 3, 
They reached for this. And now we are at the end of chapter, uh, at the middle of chapter 3, and we just read it. Now God is saying, okay, we don't want them to reach for this. I mean, there's so much reaching going on. What is life if not a constant exercise in reaching for things that we hope, once are in our grasp, will fulfill us? What is life but constant reaching? Okay, well, if I can get that together, then I'll be happy. Well, if this happens, then I'll be happy. Well, if I could just get over that, then I'll be happy. If I could get this job or this child or this kid or this family or this marriage or, you know, people like my life on social media or uh, successful or I can get the next toy or if I could get affirmation from my family or if I could just get forgiveness from this person. It's a constant state of reaching for things that are ideas like if I could just reach it, then finally, oh, my heart could be at rest. I could lay in bed at night, my soul is quiet. And that's kind of all of life. In the beginning of Genesis, we see all of this, that they reach to dethrone God, and that as they, as they reach out and de- dethrone God, they, they got what they wanted, which was independence from God, but it wasn't a dream, it was a nightmare. And we can have independence from God, too. It's not a dream, it's a, it's a nightmare, because our souls are chronically reaching because of this shame, right? They were naked and unashamed, but now they're naked and shamed, and we just read the text where God covers their nakedness. This shame is this deep sense of unease at the core of our being. All of us, all of us struggle with it. All of us ha- have to wrestle with it. It's something deep inside us. It's, it's more than just like I did something wrong, like me standing at the side of the, of the highway with the, with the police officer. It's not that I just did something wrong. Shame is like, I'm, I'm wrong. Something is wrong with me. I am not okay. I have to, I have to somehow have the universe reflect back to me that I'm actually okay. So I have to reach for all these things and somehow validate me and tell me that I, that I am okay if I could do something about this, about this shame. I remember in 2008, Jim Carrey was uh, hosting the Golden Globes and he gave this speech and it was hilarious and it was iconic, but it was also really insightful because they, in, they introduced him like this. And now two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. And everybody cheers and Jim Carrey gets up and he goes, that's right, I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. So when I go to bed at night, I'm not just a guy getting some well-deserved shut-eye. No, sir. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey getting some shut And he keeps on playing on this two-time Golden Globe winner. And he goes, but you know what I dream about? I don't just dream any old dream. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. Right? And then he goes on this whole thing. He's like, because then I would be enough. And then my terrible search would be over if I could just get that next Golden Globe. And all of us, starting with this preacher... I constantly reach for golden globes. Something to validate us, to tell us that we're okay. Because, because what our parents did in the garden created this, this shame, this dislocation. What Genesis 3 gives us and what God was covering, which I'll get to in a minute, was there's an identity dislocation. See, we were, we were, we were created for fulfillment in connection with God. So the unavoidable result of losing our connection with God was to lose a second sense of connection with ourselves, which is why shame is this haunting sense that we're not enough, and we've got to reach for things that tell us that we are. And of course, if you've ever done that, which of course everybody in here has, once we get it, the next day we wake up, and we, now we need to do it again. Now we need something else to tell us that we're okay, right? And, uh, and we search for the next golden globe. In verse 22, we just read it, we look down at it. God says, he must not be allowed to reach out and take the fruit from the tree of life. That is a sad irony. Because he was supposed to reach out and take eternal life. And now the sad irony is God is saying, 
don't reach out and take eternal life because, of course, he's in this state of sin. God doesn't want man to be perpetually in a state of damnation and sin. So God's like, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to redeem this. The creator God is the redeeming God who comes to make all things right and to reconcile. So God says, you can't reach out. Sad irony here. Eternal life doesn't just mean duration. Hey, you live forever. Because duration isn't good in of itself. It's not the quantity. It's the quality. So every time that God talks about life in him and the Zoe life of God in the New Testament, it's all this, this quantity of this fulfillment. And this teaches us something very significant. I mean, it's huge. Right there in verse 22, the tree of life, it gives us insight. It gives us insight into just how big our appetites are for fulfillment. If we were created to be eternal, and if we were created to be in relationship with God who is eternal, and if God's intent was that we would be eternally joyful and eternally fulfilled, then that means our tank for fulfillment is massive. And that means there is nothing temporal that's going to actually fill that tank. We will constantly stand in the God-shaped hole in our soul or put something else in there to fill something that was actually created for like this eternal joy. There's, there's no career, there's no job, there's no relationship, there's no amount of sex, there's no amount of money, there's no amount of, of attaboys and pats on the back. There's nothing that is going to ultimately fulfill. So the Bible isn't anti-good and enjoyable things. The Bible is like the only way to actually enjoy good and enjoyable things is to not make them ultimate things. And the problem from the beginning is that's exactly what we do. We make it ultimate thing. We worship that thing. We worship that relationship, the job, the career, the diploma, the next thing, the accolades. That's, that's the challenge. That's the problem. That's the hole in the soul. That's the shame that causes us to constantly be, be reaching out. Nothing is capable of bearing the weight of being perpetually joyful, right? That's why we got to rest in. That's why we've got to we, we, we've got to rest in God. And I'm not talking about the people who are who are outside the church or don't have faith in God. I'm talking about us, the, those who have faith in God. But we can even you know look for this fulfillment that's that's actually not resting in Christ alone. Nothing can bear the weight. There's no church that can bear the weight of that. There's no church programs that can bear the weight of that. There's no worship experience. There's no preacher. What? You're going to come here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and think that I am going to somehow fulfill that hole in your soul that makes you be like, yeah, I'm okay. There, I, can't, I can't be that novel. I can't. Nothing can fulfill it. It's only resting in, it's only resting in God and in Christ and coming and saying, oh, God, would you do, continue to do that great work? Would you cover the shame? Would you renew the work of the shame? Because we were designed for this eternal. That's why when you're at funerals, this whole sense of the eternal, it's in the heart of man. I've done so, I've talked about this before, I've officiated funerals. People who had their faith in Christ, I've been at funerals and officiated funerals for people who did not. And it doesn't matter whether they're people of faith or not. Everybody is at the funeral going, this isn't right. Something's wrong here. This isn't good. It doesn't feel natural. Even though the culture, the cultural conversation, wants to appeal to our minds and say, death is a natural part of life, right? It's natural. Our minds are like, okay, death is a natural part of life. But our hearts aren't buying it because our hearts were built for the eternal, which is why it doesn't matter what your worldview is, whether you're a Christian or you're a non-Christian or you're here today, you've got questions about faith, you're not really sure. I mean, when you're at a funeral and you see the finality of life, there's something in every human heart that goes, it's not right. 
That's why people say things. It's before their time. But it wouldn't matter how old they were. It would still be before their time. That's how we feel about it because we were created for this eternal. This great, this great sad irony in verse 22 of what we were created for. In 1943, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Abolition of Man. Abolition of Man. Uh, C.S. Lewis was a, a pro- prolific writer, philosopher. Uh, he's a Christian apologist, but before he was an atheist for years, and he came to Christian faith. And um, he actually came to Christian faith through science and philosophy and digging deeply and, and, and seeing and coming to the conviction that there was a God. He wrote this book called The Abolition of Man, and I want to read from it. He says, the more that you know your own heart, the more you, the more you know you're going to realize you weren't built for this life. Whenever we reach out for the love or success, we're not just reaching for a relationship or a job. We're reaching out to fulfill our souls. And, and as we close our fingers around those things, ultimate fulfillment still eludes us. There's always a diminishing return, but it's not psychological, it's spiritual. And until we realize that, we'll always be disappointed. So how is it that we can enjoy life and enjoy these good things? It's by not having them ultimate how we can enjoy our family and our children and live in the challenge and the and the dysfunction that is 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 family right whose family is not dysfunctional raise your hand good don't good because all of us right all of us are going through it all of us have these challenges we can't be ultimately fulfilled by making those things by making those things ultimate and so we don't want to as a church you know get on our delusional high horse and be like well that's what people whose faith in god you know if your faith isn't in god if your faith isn't in christ alone that's what those people do no 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 no. this is the 500th anniversary of the reformation right this october we're going to spend five weeks and i'm not going to preach on the reformation because that would be stupid i'm going to preach on jesus but we're going to look at his, we're going to look through history and take those five weeks to go through the the five the five theological problems that caused the church to grind to a halt, that caused the Reformation. Because they got away from the Christ alone bus. They got off it. And so here we are in the 500th year of the Reformation. And what was that? But it was, it was the church getting their eyes off of Christ and putting their eyes on all of their work and all of their activity and all of their piety and all of their everything and be like, yeah, this is how we're going to satisfy God. This is how we're going to fulfill the hold in our heart by proving that we're enough and, 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 and living lives of comparison. Well how, well, how are you doing? Well, what are you up to? Well, here's what I'm doing. And where do you land on the, on the scale of spirituality? It was a mess. I mean, it was a nightmare. And Martin Luther was like, I got 95 reasons why this is horrifying, guys. We've got away from Jesus. We've got away from his grace. And so it's not, it's, it's not like a problem for those who are outside the church. It's for all of us. This is what our parents did. And when I reflect on my own struggles with shame, and this is the last thing I'm going to say before I move on to the good news of how God covers all this and how the Spirit renews us, when I struggle with it, what I find I do is that I, I think about you know, my life and what I'm up to, which is ministry and preaching and ministering in the church and being with you folks and having coffee with you and being in your homes and, and caring in various ways. And you know, I've, when I'm dealing with my shame, I compare myself to other ministers. Well, what are they up to? Well, what am I up to? Well, what's their preaching like? Well, what's my preaching like? Well, should mine be more like them or should it be less like them? Or am I and I start comparing constantly and I'm like, okay, because my way of feeling better is if I can somehow com- compare and validate, I do that. I'm pretty sure, if I may so, be so bold, we all do that. Just my version of it looks like, the, you know, being a preacher, uh, you know, I'm a member of the church like you, right? The only difference is uh, God called me to preach the word, but I'm, we're the same. Christ is the head of the church, not me. So I have no, I have no spiritual advantage. Right? I need the grace like you need the grace. 
So we all do this because shame is working. Genesis 3 provokes us to say, listen, the shame is not outside you. It's not, that's not the problem. There's something in that needs to be healed. Consider the implications of the nakedness. God covers their nakedness in that text we just read. Because originally they were naked and they were unashamed, and now they're naked and they're ashamed. So God has to come and cover it. This is beyond just the physical. This is not like me, 10 years old, getting out of the swimming pool with my trunks around my ankles. That's not what, it's not just an embarrassing moment. It's not like Adam and Eve were like, oh, we never noticed we were naked before. You know, I promise, he noticed. I promise, he noticed. Right? It wasn't like they're just like, no, we're just looking at each other's eyes. It's just now come to our attention that we're naked. That's not how to read Genesis 3. It's an alienation. They cover themselves with fig leaves. They alienate from each other. They alienate from themselves. You know, we can't bear to be out of control about what people see about us. We can't bear to be out of control of what people think about us. It's, that's the shame that's working there. It's that the nakedness is unbearable. And so we keep from people the deepest and darkest parts of us because to truly know that part of us would would be shameful, would be a rejection. So often, and I do this, we spend a lot of energy campaigning to convince people ah, that we're, we're good people. I'm good. My heart is good. My heart is pure. We campaign our goodness. And the, the, the interesting thing about campaigning our goodness is that uh, it's, it's really an announcement of our struggle. The more that I'm com- campaigning to convince you that now my heart so good. I'm just, I'm announcing my struggle with my own shame that I have to validate myself. It's all fig leaves. But we do it. Adam blamed his nakedness on his wife, right? We identify. We blame. We blame. We put the problem out there. It's the culture. It's the church. I came from this crazy church. Redeemer's a crazy church. It's, I came from, you know, my family. These things. We've been, and listen, I'm not minimizing the impact. And I am sympathetic to the fact that family, you know, situations, church, all sorts of external things. They have significant impact on our life. I'm not, I'm not uh, unsympathetic to that. Here's what I want. Genesis 3 teaches us that our upbringing or the culture or our family or these, these things that were done to us that we never asked for, we all have those things, they're not the cause of our shame. They inflame it. They bring it out. They aggravate it. They accentuate it, but they didn't cause it. Because if you think this thing out here caused your shame, guess what? You're, then, you're, then you think your problem's outside you, and your Savior's inside you, and the way to save yourself from that problem is to isolate yourself from, from it. But you can move to an island and live on your own in paradise and f- wake up every day and still feel that sense of, I'm not enough, something's not right, because the problem's not out there. You know, I coach uh, baseball. I talk to you guys about, you know, it's, it's so fun. And, you know, one of the things that kids will, all kids strike out, and when they strike out, sometimes they get upset, they sit down, lots of kids, there's lots of tears, right? You know that old movie, there's no crying in baseball! (laughs) There is! Coach Little League, there's tons of crying in baseball. And so I go and I'll sit on the bench next to the kid who struck out, and, you know, their eyes are full of tears, and and I'm like, it's okay, everybody strikes out, and you're trying to encourage them, like, this is part of the game, don't worry about it, and you're trying to, they got to put up behind you, this is, and, um, and, you know, what is interesting is so many kids, right, including mine, they'll be like, the ump, that wasn't a strike, right? All kids, it's like a universal thing in Little League, right? Of course, of co- and you got to face it, the calling in Little League is not great. But here's what I want you to notice. What, what's so interesting is a kid can be up, strike one, you know, tomahawk over the head, you know, jumps out of the batter's box, swing, strike two, stand there and take strike three that's a little low and sit down, and then what does he say? 
oh, I can't believe it. Right? All the kids do it because it's in us. The blame is out there. The shame. You are the cause of my shame. I am sitting here. I am embarrassed. It was a sellout crowd. There had to have been 35 people that watched me strike out. And it's all because of you. Not really. Well, I have, that's the gospel according to Little League. The, the problem is not outside us. We all deal with the shame. And I'm not minimizing it. I'm just letting us know that Adam blamed his wife and the apple doesn't fall far from the forbidden tree. And often when we expose the nakedness of others, it's an effort to cover ourselves with fig leaves, to deflect attention from our own nakedness. Well, I have good news. God covers us. God covers our shame with his grace. In verse 21, look at it. God covered Adam and his wife. They tried to cover themselves. God wouldn't accept it. It's all fig leaves. Your best works. No, no, no. No, you cannot. We don't. Christian faith, for those of you who are here who may be new to uh, church or exploring, Christian faith is not like live good enough and then God is happy with you. What? Nobody lives. It's all fig leaves. It's like a little child getting themselves ready to go out. You're going to an important function and you tell your kid to get dressed and they come out and they're like, I'm ready. And their hair is moving and they're... Their shirt is disheveled. You're like, you're not ready at all. That was Adam and Eve in the garden. Like these little kids that tried to dress themselves in fig leaves. They're like, we're covered. God's like, I see your privates. Not even close. Your work is insufficient in every way. So God covers all of our shame. God doesn't back away from them in their sin and their failure. He moves toward them and he covers their sin and their failure. God does not move away from you in your sin and your failure. God is moving toward you in your sin and in your failure by the grace of Christ. God had a covenant of works with Adam. And because of Jesus, he has a covenant of grace with us. Covenant of works. Adam was created sinless. We are born sinful. Adam had the capacity to obey God perfectly, perpetually, personally. He could do it. But he didn't. He chose not to. We are not born with the ability to obey God perfectly, perpetually, personally. We can't do it. We never did it. You're not doing it. You won't do it next week. The only way to be like, no, I don't, I'm a past tense sinner. Is you lowered the 10-foot the, the rim of God's law down to 6 feet. You're dunking on it. And you're celebrating that you're, what? No. God, through the great grace of Christ, has covered our sin. And Jesus has done for us what we could absolutely never do for ourselves. And so... The gospel boldly announces that Jesus provided the perfect and the perpetual and the personal obedience for us. All our shame is covered. Verse 23, you look down at it. God sends them out of the garden to work the ground. Look at the phrase in verse 23. Sends them out of the garden to work the ground. Look at this phrase. From which he was taken. You see that? That's not like, that's not like Moses being like, I'm just going to turn the knife. Yeah, remember you came from the ground. But whenever in the Hebrew language, which Hebrew, by the way, is not really, was not originally meant to be read, it was meant to be heard, okay? Which is super important because most people couldn't read, couldn't write, and they were all hearing this. So whenever, you, whenever the, the, the scriptures repeat something, in the same way that we repeat something for emphasis, it's mega emphasis in the Hebrew because they can't even really go back and reread it. So when you hear something again, and I'm drawing your attention to this, right? The ground from which he was taken... Because when you read Genesis 3, you see he was, he, God made man from the ground, but because of sin, you're going to return to the ground, which is why at all funerals we say from dust to dust and ashes to ashes, from dust man came and from dust you will return, because that's what God said. So this right here, this is, a, this is a reminder, hey, apart from grace, this is impossible. You're not fixing it. 
the shame you feel, the whole, like, you know, something wrong with me, I'm not. You can't just do enough to fix that. You can't say, I'm going to, you know, again, getting back to the Reformation, I'm going to do enough good deeds, I'm going to stack enough chairs, I'm going to volunteer and get involved in the city, I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to feed the homeless, I'm going to give money. I'm gonna... God is not responding to your fig leaf activity, no matter how Christian it seems, and says, okay, now that's enough, now we're good. It, the Bible says he vanished from the ground from where he came, which is a Hebrew way of saying only God can fix it. He's not going to, Adam is not going to till a good enough garden to make up for what he did. Only God can fix it. God is not a God of second chances. He's a God of one chance and a second Adam. Jesus Christ is the second Adam that did everything the first one didn't do. We put all our chips on him. We trust in his great grace. And God accepts us on the basis of what Christ did, not on the basis of our fig leaves. And so this is the beauty of how God covers all of our sin. Look at verse 24. It says that this garden was on, that they were banished on the east side. The east side of the garden is guarded from Adam. This east-west imagery, it's repeated all through, all through scripture. Adam and Eve, they're banished to the east. Cain murders his brother Abel. He's banished to the east. The Tower of Babel, where people rejected the glory of God and tried to build glory, their own glory, it's in the east. The tabernacle in the Old Testament, it faces the east. The tabernacle in the New Testament, it faces the east. The east is the symbol of being banished from God's presence. The east is the symbol of it's impossible. But then in Matthew chapter 2, there's a star in the east that moves to the west. And the wise men are drawn from the east, from the banishment, and they're drawn back to the west, to Christ. So that all of us, who symbolically, metaphorically speaking, are born in the east, born, you know, symbolically in the east, alienated from God, are drawn, like the wise men, to the west, drawn back by his grace, drawn back by Christ alone into this beautiful reconciliation. How are they kept from God's grace? You look back down at, at verse 24. How were they banished? How did they get back in? Not a door. A sword. That's weird. We look at that. We're moderns. It's 2017. Kitchener, Waterloo. We're all intelligent people. We're like flaming swords. What is happening? Listen. They're not kept out by a door. A, a sword is an image of justice. The sword says, you're not getting back to God unless justice is served. You're not getting back to him unless you go under the sword of God. Harsh. What do we do with this? We're reunited only if we go under the sword of his judgment. And the good news is that the cross of Jesus Christ is the intersection of God's grace and his judgment. Jesus Christ went under the sword, under the nails, under the spear. He went under the sword. He took on God's judgment. He took it all, 100% of it. He made the way possible. That's why the temple in the Old Testament had the Holy of Holies. You couldn't go in. God was inaccessible. Nobody can go in there except for the priest. And the priest, he was a sinner too. He had to, he had to cleanse himself, all these cleansing practices in the hopes that he did them right so that he didn't die. And then what did he have to go through this veil? And what was, on, what was embroidered on the veil? Angels. Why? Reminiscent of the garden. You can't get back in here. 
Jesus Christ goes to the cross, the intersection of God's justice and his mercy. And what happens at the, at the crucifixion of Christ? The veil is torn from top to bottom. That's the direction of God's covenant for you, top to bottom. That's the direction of God's grace for you, top to bottom. That's the direction of God's love for you, top to bottom. That's the direction of, from, from Genesis to Revelation, the trajectory of God's love, how we are okay with God. It is not bottom up. It is not fig leaves. It is top bottom. I'll cover you. And I close with this. It is that the Spirit of God is healing us from these effects of shame. Of course, the judgment and the penalty for all of our sin is gone, but yet we struggle with the, with the, with the effects of our shame. And this is why the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 10, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. It's a new and a living way. We draw near through a heart of, of, uh, with full faith because the curtain which was Jesus' flesh uh, has made the way that our hearts are sprinkled clean. And this is what the, the scriptures give us because the Father planned to heal us from all this shame. The Son has accomplished the healing for all of our shame. But the Spirit, Holy Spirit, who is in all of us, who placed our faith in Christ alone, he is now healing us from those effects of shame. It's continual. It's gradual. I'm going to give you a picture of it, uh, an image of this. My very first car was a 1985 Chevy Cavalier. It's a total piece of junk. I had to drive like this. Not like this, because I'd be in the ditch. I had to drive like this, because it was so out of alignment, there was a constant pull. Shame is like that constant pull. When we place our faith in Christ alone, Jesus Christ does everything to absolve us from the guilt, the penalty of that shame. For the Christian, Judgment Day already happened. It happened at the cross. We're not all wondering what's going to happen the day we die and we're before God. And did we do enough? And did we live a good enough life? It already happened before the cross. God is not unjust. He's not going to judge us for something that Christ already paid for. So the Holy Spirit now is renewing our heart and loosening the grip of that chain. So that increasingly and over time, by the power of his word, as we come, as we gather, as we worship, as we eat, as we drink, as we hear Christ preach, as we see our young ones baptized, as new believers come and are baptized, the spirit is unraveling our hearts from that shame. So that instead of constantly fighting to keep our lives, spiritually speaking, on the road, so that we don't go over and worship this thing over here, increasingly and over time, it lessens its grip. The same grace that rescued us scandalously, is renewing us, and we call that sanctification. Both occur. Justification is one and done. Sanctification, though, is for a lifetime. And this is what we're in now, this beautiful renewal. This beautiful renewal of God's grace. This is the fruit that he produces. Galatians discusses it. What is God doing in you by the power of his Spirit? What is he producing? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Can you produce those things? No. He does it. It's his fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's gradual, and it's imperceptible, but it's eventual, because it's his work. So what do we do? What's our part then? Do we produce these things? Do we, we can't. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. But what we are invited into is confession, and rest, and going before God, and saying, God, I am going to uncover myself before you in confession, and you will cover me in your grace. And you, by the power of your Holy Spirit who dwells in me richly, is going to begin to renew my heart. So I stop chasing after these many messiahs, hoping they're going to satisfy my heart and give me the rest that only resting in God can give. And then I, my heart is actually increasingly free. Increasingly free to enjoy every good thing without turning it into an ultimate thing. 
and making it a fruit tree and saying, this will satisfy me apart from God. This is the good news of the gospel. It's good news, and it doesn't become old news because we always need it. Jesus Christ clothes us so we are finally free from clothing ourselves. We're called out of the shame of covering, and we're invited into the freedom of confession. And we do that as he increasingly heals us, as Jesus went under the sword for us. Therefore, church, when you feel least invited, least worthy, least accepted, is when you are most invited, most accepted, because of Christ's great grace for you. Let's pray.